So that's going on right now. I want to let you know that if you have kids that are in here, we have another sensitive topic that we're going to be talking about today. And you're more than welcome to go take advantage of our child care this morning, though we won't be talking about quite as uh, intimate stuff as we did a few weeks ago. So um, we're continuing our series called The Elephant in the Room. And so far, we've talked about five different topics. We've talked about what is the role of judgmentalism within the church. We looked at the reality that, truthfully, God expects us to hold each other accountable, but yet we are not in a position to judge those outside of the faith. We also looked at um, racism. We've looked at sexual purity and what does it look like to have purity in our relationships with others. We've looked at Islam, politics, and am I missing one? Is that five? Okay, that's five. Now, a few weeks ago, Stacy and I and Christina joined us, and we talked about purity. Uh, some of you have already asked if Christina can do something a little more intensive, um, kind of in a private seminar, and uh, whether you're a parent looking to talk to your kids or whether it's just questions that you have, and we want you to know that we are more than happy to make that available. We'll probably be looking at that sometime end of summer, first of fall, and, uh, but we'll certainly put something like that together and give you the opportunity to be a part of that. Today, we're going to be talking about a truly hot topic. It's all over the news. Um, we're going to be talking about same-sex attraction. And this is quite honestly the first time in our eight years of existence that we've even broached this subject on a Sunday morning. There's a lot of reasons for that. And quite honestly, if there was a topic that we could just not do, for me, this would probably be one of them. Uh, like many of you, we have a lot of friends, and uh, we have lots of friends that have varying opinions across the spectrum. Uh, we also have some really good friends that are in a same-sex relationship. So we have a lot of perspectives to bring to this, and what it's important for us to do, I believe, is uh, we've got to talk about these issues at the church and understand what Scripture says, because people are talking about them outside of the church. And many times, the way that Christians approach this topic it can truly be hurtful, and it's not helpful at all in the dialogue that's going on around us. And so we want to kind of create a foundation. There's no way for us to talk about every facet or everything. We're not going to go into any kind of detail as far as practice or anything like that. What we want to overarchingly cover is just what does Scripture say about same-sex attraction, and how should we respond to that? Now, even within this room, likely we have lots of different opinions. And often what happens among churchgoers is we have two very divergent opinions. One opinion being, we shouldn't talk about this. This shouldn't be tolerated. We should not have anything to do with anybody that has anything to do with this. And unfortunately, what we find on the news many times, or people will even go so far, even those claiming to be Christians will go so far as to cause harm to someone that is dealing with this issue. The other side of the coin typically falls under the let people live and love whoever they want to. It's not for us to say. We shouldn't say anything about it. And the problem is with that mentality is it doesn't give us an opportunity to truly find out what does God say because as followers of Jesus, that is what is most important. And what I find on so many issues that while Jesus does at times, take the extreme measure in so many issues, he's somewhere in between where we fall on the extremes. And so we want to have a, a chance to really talk through that. And 
We're going to go through several different issues. Just like all of our other topics, we're going to talk about what scriptures say. We're going to also talk about what if you struggle with this or you know somebody that does, because this is one of those hidden kind of secret things that often you won't ever admit to. But it's important to know what if you struggle with this. And then we're also going to talk about how should we as a church respond. And I hope that we can give a good overarching grace-driven view of how Jesus would respond given these same situations um, in the times that we live. I think one of the reasons that there are so many disparaging um, ideas is because uh, it really depends on when you grew up. If you grew up like I did in the 70s, the 80s, and you saw a lot of what was demonstrated through same-sex attraction relationships, through gay pride things and parades, and it was really just kind of in your face. And it is one of the reasons that the whole face of this movement has changed to look like your everyday family is because it was so destructive, the images that came out in those 70s and 80s. Many of those who were older struggled with this more than those who were younger because you grew up when the face of homosexuality was different than it is today. Some of the things that shape our opinion and shape certainly my opinion is relationships that you have with people. If you have family or friends, if you're someone yourself, you struggle with this within your life, you have a very specific idea or way of dealing with this. Whereas if you heard or just you don't know anybody who struggles with this, then what you're going to take on is what you've learned, what someone has taught you. It could be a family member or a friend. It could be a peer group at school, which is not usually the healthy place to learn behavior towards others. But you've probably learned those from a number of different places. Ultimately, what we want to do here today is we want to be able to demonstrate what does it look like to share love and grace because that's what we are called to as believers, as followers of Jesus. But what's important for us also to do is to talk about what is truth because ultimately truth is what is able to release us from bondage. Truth is what helps every single one of us deal with sin. And if we just take on a mindset that ignores what God has said, then what we are basically doing is allowing someone to continue in that bondage and we just watch and let them. And what you're going to find is that this is not a topic that is any more salacious or any different than anything else anyone in this room deals with. The fact that we have made it and put it on a pedestal and made this this terrible thing, that is a misunderstanding of how God has spoken about this issue. If you in this room has ever struggled with sin, then you have struggled to know the difference between what does God want and what do I want. Because often what we are focused on are the things that we want. So Stacy's going to join us again. If you're a guest here, you don't know who Stacy is. Stacy's our discipleship director. We're going to be kind of going back and forth and talking about some different aspects. Both of us um, have lots of relationships in this area and feel like we've got some things that we can share with you. All right. So just to get started, um, I, I don't know, three weeks ago, I wrote a blog called Not a Single Story. I'm not going to ask if you read it because I'm pretty sure the answer is no. But I wrote it and put it out there. And it is truly what I believe is one of the biggest problems that you and I have in relationships today. And that is pigeonholing someone based on a single story. Now, I am not defined, I hope, by a single story because that means depending on what that story is, I may be a really great guy or I may be a really bad guy. I mean, it really depends on which story you want to nail me with. Now, for some of you, I know some of your stories, and I could nail you too. But the truth is, 
Don't we all, aren't we all made of many different parts of our life? Our identity can't be defined or it can't be put on display in just one characteristic. There are many things that make us who we are today. And similarly, when we talk about same-sex attraction, there is no one type of person. There is no one type of couple. There is no one single story. Though what our media will try to do is push one story. And sometimes in the church, what we try to do is one story. And the reason is because it's easy, it's neat, and it's clean. I don't have to think about all the other things. I don't have to consider what other uh, issues that you're dealing with. I don't have to weigh the pros and the cons. I don't have to do anything like that. All I have to do is say, well, I've made up my mind. This is what it is. And I will tell you, that is never how Jesus treated people. He never gave us the opportunity to be defined by a single story. The most important story, though, being that he gave his life for us. And so as we enter into this discussion, I hope you'll enter it with us prayerfully, and you'll also enter into this conversation with us with humility because we are all simply sinners saved by grace. Amen? All right. So we're going to continue on. We're going to go through a few different things. Uh, I want to begin with what moves a person to this again. There's not a single story, nor am I going to cover every possible reason that someone enters into this. Over the course of my ministry, I've had a lot of people come to me and want to talk about this issue. And when they come, they want to know, what does God say? What am I supposed to do? And whenever I talk with them, many of the stories that I hear come out of just incredible instances of abuse, but not all do. Abuse is not the number one qualifier about why a person has decided to be in a same-sex relationship. Some have experienced abuse, some have been shaped by their abuse, and some have not. There are all kinds of reasons that people will choose to do this. Another is these are learned behaviors based on your peer group, who you're around. It's just natural and normal for you to be attracted to someone of the same sex. And so they have learned that in part of their development. That's just what is normal, and that's just kind of the thing that you do. Others have experimented with different things. And if we all were to go through the room and talk about in college what we experimented with, it probably wouldn't be a really healthy conversation, would it? That's nervous laughter right there. It's nervous laughter. So some of those are, those are some of the reasons. Others are, are emotions that get entangled within relationships, whereas something that does not begin being physical or in the kind of relationship that is romantic, it becomes that because things get entangled. And as you remember when we talked about purity, the problem with physical intimacy is God has given us that so that we will bond to the person that we're in a relationship with, with the goal that you will grow closer with your spouse. And when we exercise that outside of marriage, it leads to all kinds of issues. And this can be one of those as well. I think another area that often gets overlooked in terms of same-sex attraction or just sin in general is the idea of spiritual warfare. Satan has been active in existence since before the creation of the world, which we know from Job. We know that soon after God created Adam and Eve, Satan entered in attempting to tempt them away from following God. And the New Testament reemphasizes over and over again in Ephesians 2, it says that Satan is the prince of the air. Um, In John 10.10, it says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we all probably know 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, where it talks about how the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, and we are told to resist him. 
And then again in James 4, 7, we're told to resist the devil. So there is an element that we have to face when we're dealing with any type of sin, which is Satan is active and wants to derail our lives any way that he can. And in some instances, one of those tools that he uses is same-sex attraction. And so we have to be aware of that. We have to realize that this is not just an abuse, learned, entangled relationship kind of thing. We also have to look at it at a very spiritual level um, as we move forward in what God is doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Um, There's a couple of things as we move forward today. One that we are not going to try to do. We are absolutely not going to try to tell you who or how you should love. We all know, even looking at heterosexual relationships, we look at couples and we're like, that is a really odd couple, right? And we have no idea how the two of them got together. We don't always have the ability to control how we interact and connect with people. And so we're not going to tell anybody today how they should or shouldn't feel or how or who they feel loved towards. But there is a difference in how we feel and how we act. And just because we feel one way doesn't mean we have to act that way. Most of you with kids, especially multiple kids, know that your child may feel like hitting his or her brother or sister. But it doesn't mean that they should act out on hitting their brother or sister. And so there's a distinct difference there. And another element to look at is we are simply broken people in our sin nature. And oftentimes our desires lead us toward things that are unhealthy or in ways that God does not desire us to act. And so that's one thing that we're not going to do today. However, what we are going to ask you to do today is to really take a good hard look at what Jesus is saying and who he is and ask yourself if you're going to be willing to surrender to whatever Jesus says, whether you agree or disagree. And at those points where we disagree, can we come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord And regardless on how we feel about an issue, that we can come and agree with what Jesus is saying. I think um, one of the best ways to approach that is to look at how Jesus asked us to follow him. And this is really the foundation of what Journey is all about. In Matthew 22, 37 through 40, um, we are told to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. And it says all of the law and prophets hang on this. Um, And so as we consider this, I want you to really settle in this thought that our love for individuals must always supersede our position on sexual morality. But we also must remember that part of loving someone is sharing truth at the right time and after we have built a foundation of love. Um, We cannot, regardless of the sin, our love for a person has to be greater than our love for being right. Um, And so those are the things that I really hope that we can settle uh, our hearts on this morning as we move forward in this topic. Right. And it is so crucial that we understand that when we approach Christ as our Savior, that there is such an important role of humility in following him. Uh, you know, there are many things that I think feel very normal and good and right that Jesus says that is not normal nor good nor right. Now, the fact that I want to pursue them, no matter what Jesus says, usually reminds me later why God said that was not good nor normal nor right, but I've done them anyways. In fact, when 
Um, Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but, in its, but its end is the way to death. I, I can attest to that personally. My guess is anyone who's honest in the room can attest to that personally as well. We have all at times made those decisions. But when it comes to submitting before Christ, we recognize that we are saying what your way is, whatever you tell us to be, we're going to follow that. And we understand that that is the best way to live life. Not just the best way, that is the way we were designed to live life. We gave a couple of those examples and when we talked about purity, one being um, the school system in Finland was, has become the number one education system in the world, has determined that you need rest in order to truly be able to learn to your greatest extent. Well, that's the whole purpose of the Sabbath, is for us to take rest. God designed us that we can't just go, 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 and never stop because we can't function that way. We had, we had begin to move um, to where we're not being able to be as functional, we're not able to be as, as uh, able to continue on if we don't take a break. Similar with purity. God has given us instructions not to be a killjoy in relationship that you only have sex with somebody in marriage. He designed us that way. Our brains function that way. And so similarly, the reason that Jesus tells us and teaches us a way to live life is not because he says, you know what, let's do this. Let's just instill this in them and then tell them they can't do it. Because that's the way a lot of people see God. So as we approach Jesus, it's important to understand, well, what does Jesus say about this? Here's the problem, and many of you in this room can point this out. Jesus doesn't say a whole lot about this, does he? And so when you begin to talk to a friend and they they ask you the, the question, well, how do you feel about this? You can't just say, well, we need to look at what Jesus said. Because Jesus doesn't even bring it up. However... While many will use this as a reason to say that it's no big deal, if Jesus thought it was a big deal, he would have said something. If you'll also go back and look, there are many things Jesus didn't say that we could all agree are not healthy things. Instead, what we begin to see and what Jesus did, because he knew this would be an issue for you and I right now, for those people before us and those people after us, that someone would raise this objection is he demonstrated that he was going to show us the way to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, because that's what he said he had come to do. Matthew 5, 17 and 18 says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus literally was saying, I am not here to say, ignore everything that we've said so far. I am here to show you what it looks like to live this out, which is what we often get wrong. How do we live this out? So what does the scripture say? There are many places in scripture that do talk about this. But I want to bring up one in particular. What I'd like for you to do as I read through this is I would like for you to listen for things other than same-sex attraction in this. Because this passage is about a lot of stuff. In Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 24, it says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations of those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty of their error. Now, that's where most people stop, but as all Scripture must be read, you've got to understand it in context, not just take a few verses and say, there you go. And so as it continues on in verse 26, it sa- or 28, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. All right, Christians like to overlook gossips. Do you see that what Paul is doing are putting these on the exact same playing field? The exact same playing field. Verse 30 says, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty. Is anybody in here haughty? Uh, You're not going to admit it. That's, again, more nervous laughter. Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Are my kids in here? You now listening to this? This is bad stuff. This changes the context of this passage. Some of the parents just elbowed their kids, by the way, like I did. Verse thirty-two or, or verse thirty-one says, "Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless." Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, when we look at all of this, all sin is the same. If you went a little too far in one of your relationships, it's the same thing. If you're gossiping, it's the same thing. If you're not obeying your parents, which I'm guilty of, it's the same thing. See, when we begin to prioritize sin, what we begin to do is we we begin to prioritize sinners. And I have found that it is much easier to prioritize sinners based on those sins in which you and I do not struggle. Right? The worst ones are always the ones I don't deal with. That is a defense mechanism of the flesh. And that is what all of us tend to do in our nature. That is not the way Jesus saw things. We are all in need of a Savior. It's all equally the same. And ultimately, the question that's being asked us is, will we be submissive to God's authority and his instructions? Isaiah 66, 2 says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is the character of a follower of Jesus. Uh, And I think that character of a follower of Jesus is so important. And so when we say, okay, well, what can we do and how can we approach this? And we we can say, well, how would Jesus respond? Um, I found myself even just the other day in a really surprised conversation with someone about this issue. And um, as we were talking... Uh, she was just like, man, the people are just so hypocritical. They say one thing and they do another and, you know, they, they're mess ups themselves and then they want to pick at me and my sin and what I'm doing. And I'm like, man, that's so true. But the issue is we are all hypocritical at our very core. We all do things we know we shouldn't do. And we all act in ways that we know we shouldn't act. And we all act like we don't do those things. 
and that we are better than we really are. And so I was just explaining to her, I was like, you know, really, you can't look at people. Your focus can't be on what other individuals are doing because we are just broken people trying to take and walk alongside other broken people to find holiness and healing in Jesus. So anytime anybody looks at me as that person is like, you are so hypocritical, I have to say yes, you're right, I am, because I'm just a broken individual. And that's what I told her, and I said, but what you do have to do is look at Jesus, because he's the only one that you can truly look at to see what his love and God's love for an individual really is all about. And there are several stories in the New Testament that Jesus uses to show how graceful and merciful he is. But I want to just share two. Um, one is um, a story about how Jesus never shuns a societal outcast. And if we're all being honest right now, even though uh, same-sex attraction is moving toward acceptance in our society, there is still a great deal of um, just disdain and pushing away and putting people in a system of outcast. But what we see is that Jesus never did that with somebody who was considered a social outcast. And we see this in Matthew 9, 20 through 22. You may know this as the story where the woman had been bleeding for 12 years, and she reaches out and she touches the garment of Jesus, and immediately she is healed. And Jesus is like, who touched me? She, he has hundreds of people crowding around and pushing on him, but he knows that one individual has touched him. And if you don't know, this was a big deal because this woman and her uh, had bleeding, been bleeding for 12 years would have been considered a social outcast. She should not have even been in the city, and she most definitely should not have touched a rabbi. But instead of rejecting her, And telling her that she shouldn't have touched him. And instead of pushing her away, he draws her in and said, who did that? And he said, your faith has healed you. Jesus had every right as a rabbi to push this societal outcast away, and he did not. And so I think as we come to questions like this, we have to say we're not going to push people who were dealing with stuff different from us away. We're not going to shun them. We're going to draw them in. I think... Um, a story that really actually fits this, maybe even, well, I think it's probably the best story that fits this, um, is in John chapter 8. I'm sure we all know this story, um, but let's spend some time here thinking through and applying this to our situation today. It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And in placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. 
And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Take a moment and picture this scene. Early, possibly Sabbath morning. Probably dry and dusty in the setting of the Middle Eastern culture. And Jesus has come down from the mountain and he's gone into the temple. The area of worship and teaching where people are coming to hear the word of God. And so in the midst of this opportunity, it would be like somebody walking in here right now, dragging a woman down the aisle, naked, bare, and ashamed, and holding her in front of every single one of us and like, this woman was caught in adultery. And there she is, bare, without any ability to cover herself or her shame, standing before hundreds, possibly even thousands of people being condemned before Jesus. And she's not just being condemned, she's being condemned by teachers and Pharisees of the law. Could you imagine Mark or me or anybody else on staff dragging somebody down here and doing that? But that's the situation that this woman is finding herself in. And Jesus is setting the stage in his reaction by not responding immediately. He's kind of making these teachers and Pharisees think about what they're doing and who they're condemning. And so they're, they're blaming her. They're saying she needs to be condemned. She needs to be stoned. Who's missing? The guy, right? Old Testament law says anyone caught in adultery must be stoned, both the man and the woman. I suspect this is a trap. Not just for Jesus. We're told this is a trap for Jesus. I suspect it's a trap for the woman too. They probably had some guy that didn't care, goes and has an affair with this woman, and to be able to take it to court has to have two or more witnesses. Can you imagine that? group of guys going in knowing that they're having sex and they shouldn't be having sex and they catch them and they drag her out. That's the setting that we have. And this woman is clearly guilty. She cannot escape it. But the guys are picking and choosing their sin. How often do we do that? Just like Mark said, we set it apart and it's easy to pick on something that we don't deal with. I suspect that maybe they did deal with this. At least one of them in the crowd crowd dealt with this because he was sleeping with her, right? And so they have the stones and they're ready to convict her and they're proclaiming that Jesus should do the same. And instead, Jesus says, you without sin cast the first stone. And I can just imagine the silence as they start to think, about the sin in their own lives. And then you can hear it. As the stones fall and people start walking away one by one, oldest to youngest. Why? Because we all know the older we get, the more baggage we got. Right? We carry so much. And that's where we stand. We stand 
with so much baggage that we can never throw a stone. And I love Jesus' response here. You know, he doesn't condemn her. The trap here is between whether he's going to show mercy or he's going to condemn. And he chooses to condemn knowing that that condemnation will be dealt with on the cross. Sin does not go unpunished, whatever that sin is. But Jesus said, I'm going to take it on the cross. And that's what he did when he went to that woman. And I think the way he responds is beautiful. If this were you and me, we would say, if you don't sin anymore, or if you do this, then I will accept you, right? I won't condemn you. You'll be okay. Just don't do this anymore and we're good. That's how we're going to respond. That's how we... That's what we do with kids. That's how oftentimes I respond to students in the classroom. We say, if this, then this. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. The first thing Jesus does is set aside the condemnation and bring in acceptance. He draws her close. And that's exactly how we should respond in any situation. But particularly, I think, in the realm of same-sex attraction because the hurt and the shame and the guilt and the bashing that people have dealt with is often so incredibly hurtful that if we push them away instead of draw them close, we will never have that foundation of love. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Religion says change first and then you will be accepted. But the gospel says I have accepted you Follow me and I will give you the power for change. And it's Jesus' forgiveness that provides the power to overcome sin. And so instead of shunning the sinner and shunning the societal outcast, he instead offers acceptance, removes our guilt, and requests that we repent. And that is exactly how we should enter in in any relationship that we have. Such a beautiful way to watch how Jesus deals with people in the New Testament. Right. And in this situation, you might be thinking, well, this is, this is a heterosexual sin. But as we've already discovered, there's no difference. The pain that comes along with a relationship outside of how God designed it is really no different. Now, we can mask it. And what's even most salacious in our culture that we live in now is we can live in it and feel 100% justified and there's nothing wrong with it. And yet before Christ, we are dying inside. Now, many of us struggle with this in lots of different ways. The fact that we allow society to determine what is right and wrong for us as followers of Jesus is one of the biggest problems in the church today. Another one, similarly, is whenever we try to put someone else in a place of sin over us. Somehow we're not as bad as them. Somehow we don't need Jesus as much. And the person that really put Jesus on the cross was the homosexual or the murderer or the whatever, fill in the blank. But no, we put him there. He died for all of us because we all needed him. And what you'll find is that Jesus consistently never made a differentiation between sin. And he treated everybody the same except for one group. Do you remember who that group was? The religious leaders who refused to bow a knee before God. 
Those were the only people Jesus was hard on. It is incredible to see that he is so gracious, he is so accepting, and he is so loving, at the same time consistently showing truth. Because what he wants a person to see is that they have freedom through him if they will accept it. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral... There's a whole lot of people that fall into that category right there. What's on your phone right now? What subscriptions are you getting? What are the places you go to when no one's looking? There's a whole lot that fall into that list right there. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then just let's just go ahead and throw in everything else that we could possibly do. Because that's what he's trying to say here. Not say, well, these are the only ones. Because that's how we often read. Well, he didn't say mine. He didn't say lying, did he? Right? I don't think he really said, uh, he said greedy. But, you know, I'm not really that greedy. We, we tend to contain these lists when he is saying this is everyone. But here is the beauty of what he goes on to say. What Paul goes on to say in verse 11. And such were some of you. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, you're one of those. And such were some of you. The reason he didn't say all of you is because today, just like then, not everybody who participates in a church actually has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people are exploring. Some people are, are still not willing to submit in humility before him or unwilling to repent. Jesus knew in his uh, in his group, in his culture, and in ours today, there are some that would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, or yeah, I go to church, but not all had truly experienced repentance before him. But he knew that those who had knew it. And one of those important things for a follower of Jesus is that not only do we recognize that we are sinners, we recognize the immense amount of grace that we have received because of Christ's willingness to love us even in the midst of our sin. If we are going to be people in the church to reflect Jesus in the world, we must do the same to others. Always. No matter what their issue is. No matter what their deal is. No matter how bad they are to us. No matter how much they hurt us. That is who we are. So far as to even say, if someone is your enemy, love them. Pray for them. If someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. Because it's our opportunity to show love in a way that they don't experience. Back to verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That same offer is still available to us today. So it's not just heart issues that we're dealing with. Even though that is the core of where all of this comes from, we also have to deal with desire. And desire can come in all shapes, forms, and fashions. And one thing that I consistently have to tell myself um, (laughs) is that the heart is deceitful. It's just deceitful. And I think we have, well, I know in Jeremiah 17, verse 7, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. 
and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, there's the thing. Left on our own to deal with our own heart's desires, our hearts will lead us astray and away from the path that God has for us every single time. Without Jesus walking beside us, behind us, and in front of us to protect us, we will always go the wrong direction based on what we desire. And so Jeremiah is saying, it's deceitful. Don't trust always. Now, sometimes our desires are right on. Sometimes the things that we love and we want to pursue are exactly in the path of what God has given us. Um, But sometimes even what is good is not always what God is leading leading us to his best for. Um, And it doesn't mean that what we are thinking or feeling isn't real. Okay? If you are hurting, it doesn't mean the hurt you're feeling is not real if it's something you feel like you shouldn't be hurt over. If you are in love with somebody and you know that it's the wrong type of relationship that you should be in, it doesn't mean that you don't love them. But it doesn't mean that we should always act in those ways. And Jeremiah says, there is no cure, no cure for this. And I'm thinking, man, that's a hard place to be because desires are really hard to fight. If you feel a way, we often want to act the way we feel. And to think that there is no cure for how I feel is really scary to me. And I feel trapped sometimes thinking, I can't change the way I feel. The way I feel is the way I feel. I hurt. I still hurt. I can't help the hurt that I feel. It's just the way it is. But I do think even though there is no cure for how deceitful our hearts are, I do think God gives us something to contradict this deceitfulness in our heart. And we can see that if we back up to verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. You see, I think when we look at that and we were struggling with our desires and the choices that we make, we can lean into Jesus and we can trust what his word says. And we can trust that what he says is right and good for us, even though it's not what we feel is right and good. And when we lean into him and trust in that, we can also trust that what he has for us is what is best for us. Now, one thing that we want to be sure and talk about through this topic, and some of you, this is not an issue for you. Uh, You don't struggle with this temptation. You don't feel any ill will towards those who do, and you may even have some good friends, Um, but you may have other areas. Brokenness is brokenness, right? We all experience it in different ways. Brokenness and brokenness. What Scripture tells us is that same-sex attraction or homosexuality is a form of brokenness. It's a kind of brokenness that it breaks us in many different ways. It breaks us emotionally it can break us physically it can break us spiritually it breaks us in many different ways and it can be truly an entrapping enslaving uh, temptation to have to deal with but we know that no matter what your area of brokenness is consistently consistently 
Jesus has said there is a cure for brokenness. And that cure is the gospel. Over and over and over again, we see that. What we find, and this is one of the things, we've, some of what we've sung about this morning already, some of the things that we hold so crucially within our own hearts to who we are and that God loves us, is that God loves every person no matter what their sin is. He loves us all. It doesn't matter what our issue is. It doesn't matter how good of a Christian we are. It doesn't matter how many times we went to church. It doesn't matter if we went on any mission trips in our life. God loves every person no matter what their sin is. And also, God has given everyone an opportunity to be forgiven and to know him through Jesus. God has given that to every single person. You cannot disqualify yourself from the, off, from the offer. There is nothing you can do. I've shared, in this, uh, I've shared here before how my grandfather rejected the gospel for so long because he felt like what he did in wartime made him uh, a, not, no longer a candidate. It took until he was almost on his deathbed before he was willing and able to say, God loves me and God is offering me this grace no matter what I've done. God offers that to everyone. He offers you the opportunity to be healed. He offers you the opportunity to be put back together. 1 Corinthians 6.11, we read just a little bit ago. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. In 1 Timothy, Paul says this, chapter 1, verse 12, it says... And this is, he's talking about himself at this point. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the most foremost. See, Paul has been writing about this sin over and over again. And yet in Paul's eyes, he was the greatest sinner in the world. Great not being good. The person most in need of saving. Paul saw that in himself. And as far as we know, this is not something that Paul dealt with says, I am the foremost. Verse 16 says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is available to anyone at any level of brokenness if we so choose to accept it. Jesus said this another way, in a more simplistic way, that if you're dealing with brokenness, you're dealing with hurt, and if you're dealing with pain, he says what many of us have come to know, if you don't memorize scripture, you've probably memorized this at some way where in, in the other. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Once a person is faced with their brokenness, rest is the thing that eludes them. And yet he says, I am here. And no matter what your level of brokenness, no matter what you're dealing with, I am here. Come to me and I will give you rest. Yeah, that, and I think that's incredibly powerful. 
Because in the midst of our struggle, we often have to ask ourselves, what do we do? And how do we get to that point of finding rest? Because it is such a battle when we come to that point of brokenness and we're wondering how to move forward. And I think there are many levels that Mark has mentioned several times. There's a level of working, walking alongside of this, alongside of someone. Maybe there's somebody in your family or a friend that's dealing with this, and you're not sure how to walk alongside them in this time. Maybe this, the topic of same-sex attraction is something that you've just set aside and chosen not to deal with because it's honestly easier not to deal with it, right? Um, it's not controversial if you just set it aside and don't deal with it. Maybe you're in that point where you are finding yourself in situations of temptation and struggle and not really sure how to deal with that. Or maybe you're already in a very committed relationship and wondering how to move forward and where you are. And I would say, no matter where you are on the spectrum of, of really kind of coming to a conclusion or decision about same-sex attraction, I think that nothing really matters until you first deal with who Jesus is. That's the first question that you've got to ask and you've got to come to and saying, who is Jesus and what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord in my life? And I think Mark mentioned earlier, Isaiah 66 too, the one that the Lord looks upon as he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at the word of God. We come to God with humility recognizing that our hearts are bad. All of us have hearts that are bad and in opposition to him. And we have to agree in humility and with that contrite heart that we know is bad, that what God has said is right, despite whether or not I agree. Where we disagree, God is right. And ultimately, we have to say, are we willing to uphold the word of God? And that's where our starting point always has to be, not sin. Because we all have the same issues as far as disconnect from God based on sin on our lives, though that sin may be different. But when we deal first with our relationship with Jesus, everything else will come from that. And we have to recognize that the core issue is never our sexuality, but our hearts, minds, and souls, just like in Matthew 23, Love the Lord your God, or 22, love the Lord with your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And loving him above all else, that's the core issue as we enter into struggling with this situation. A few more practical things. Um, if you are dealing with this and you are experimenting, Mark mentioned this earlier, the experimenting that you might be doing is causing more bondage. Okay, just like Christina said a few weeks ago, that the chemicals in our brain fire and cause us to bond. So if you are in a situation where you're experimenting, I'm just going to tell you to stop. I think when you can take that break and stop for anything that you're experimenting in, it gives your body the time to recover from the chemical imbalances and to actually almost disconnect from those bonds to really give yourself an opportunity to see something with somewhat of a clean slate. And so I'm going to encourage you, if you're experimenting, stop. I'm also going to encourage you to just lay your heart at Jesus' feet. And I know that that is one of the hardest things to do when you are entangled in a relationship that you want so badly because it feels so good. But ultimately, we have to take that and we lay it at the feet of Jesus and we draw close to him 
because he knows us. And that's one of the things that I love so much. I have no idea if the band knew this morning when they were singing what we were talking about today or how long ago they prepped these songs. But one of the songs says, He knows my past, the choices I've made, when I have wandered, when I've pushed away. Jesus knows all of that, but we can take that and lay our hearts at his feet and draw close to him, and he will heal whatever it is that we are dealing with. Now, there is another side of this, because if you're experimenting, if you've been in a relationship, if you're dating, that's one thing. But now, based on the laws of the land, you can be married, you can um, have, you know, you are legally in um, bound to each other. You can adopt children. You can have children. Some will have children through a, another relationship, or many will have children through, you know, in vitro or something like that. And if you were to walk in and talk to a committed couple, because the idea is that all homosexuals are these, you know, terrible people who just go sleep with everybody and they just have no commitment to anybody. That is not always the case. That is the case with some, but hey, that's the case with some heterosexuals as well. There are many that are in committed relationships with a partner. Some are raising children together. Now, one of the, Stacey and I, we were talking about this uh, sermon and putting this together. We were talking about, you know, when this was similar to an issue of missionaries in Africa when they began to go into these villages and men where it was a patriarchal society and men would have just dozens of wives. And so would a missionary walk in and just all of a sudden say, you know what, you got to pick one, all the rest are out in the street. (laughs) What do you do? They have kids together. And in those systems and in those societies, if a person was to say, I'm going to follow Jesus now and I'll no longer practice this, then that would have made them an outcast. No way to make a living would probably ensure their certain death. In reality, these issues are much more complex than we like to make them. And in this particular case, and we have friends and that are in this situation, there, there are a few things that we would recommend if you know someone or if anyone comes to you in counsel. Number one, everything flows through grace, right? Everything flows through grace. I am so thankful that when I became a Christian, Jesus didn't say, okay, Mark, I'll let you in, but you can't ever do anything wrong ever again. I'm so thankful he didn't say that. But instead, what he has done with me is he has walked with me along through the years so that I've been able to trust him with things that I wasn't sure about when I first became a Christian. The more I grew, the more I mature, the more I changed. And I'm nowhere even close to where I hope to be by the time I breathe my last. So in those particular relationships, one of the very first and most important things to do is simply this. And this seems so simple because it is. Just follow God. Just follow God. Some of these entanglements, God's going to have to work these out. Some of these decisions that will have to be made will have to be made in confidence that God wants them to make these choices. And it is not right for you or I as Christians to sit down and say, don't ever speak to each other again. No matter what harm comes to this child, no matter how you're legally entangled, you and I are not able to understand all of the facets that are going on. But God is, and every person who follows Jesus is given the Holy Spirit for wisdom and discernment. So number one, follow God. Number two is this, draw closer to Jesus. 
Now, every one of us in this room can take this at heart. Simply draw closer to Jesus. Whenever you begin to know him and you fall in love with Jesus, then you desire to follow his instructions. You want to follow those instructions. But that grows in a person. That becomes stronger and stronger as they continue to mature. And thirdly, let the Holy Spirit lead. There are so many complicated things here that we understand that Jesus told the lady that was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. But we also understand that in this one, this particular instance, there can be so many entanglements. The Holy Spirit will be working with them to untangle them in the way that honors him. And we have to trust that he is going to lead them to do that. It's not my place to do that. I can't tell you how, what you're supposed to do in that, but the Holy Spirit will lead you to be able to find that place. I would also say this. One of the real struggles for those who are Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction, because there are Christians who love Jesus who struggle with same-sex attraction. The big fear that they struggle with is what if I can never be attracted to someone of the opposite sex? Now, if you know someone that deals with this, this is a fear that they have, and you need to know that this is a fear that they have. And this would be my suggestion for you, and that is this, that you and I live in a broken world, and there's a reason that we hear about heaven. Paul said himself that it is better for him to remain single than to be married because it allowed him to devote his whole heart and his whole life to Christ. If you're married and if you have children, you know what Paul was talking about because that requires so much of you in that relationship. Now, ultimately, we don't all embrace that. God has called us to have relationships because if we did, then we would be the last generation on earth. There would be no more children. But Paul said, it is best to devote your life to Christ. You can know him more. You can serve him well. And so we believe that while that is not the answer that many want to hear in many different scenarios, not just in same-sex attraction, when we cannot approach a marriage relationship in a healthy way, embrace what it means to be single and devote your life to Christ. You will not be disappointed in drawing closer to Christ. So the last thing we want to do here is we want to talk about how should we respond as the church. Um, Mark said earlier when he introduced the topic, he's like, this would be one of those things that if we could, we would table it, right? It's it's not an easy conversation to have. Almost makes me sick sitting up here talking about it um, because it is so divisive on a relational level, okay? It's not divisive because of sin, even though that's that's part of what we're doing. It's divisive because it breaks relationships. And, um, And so it's easy to set it aside, Uh, But we can't. We have to, as a church, engage the issue and be a part of people's lives. We have to decide and choose to invest in the world around us, regardless of where they are standing. And so, so we have to engage. But as we engage, we, as the body of Christ, have to be the safest place. The safest place. For anybody to deal with any sin, regardless of what that sin is or looks like. We have to be the safest place. The world is not the safest place because even if the world is affirming the sin, that's not safe. 
And so we have to be the safe place. We have to be the place where people can be open and honest and vulnerable and that we will give them a hug. We will walk alongside them and we will encourage them, but we will also speak truth because here's the deal. The safest place is not always the most comfortable place. I almost liken it to trying to hide in the bottom of my closet during a tornado, right? Like the bottom of my closet is one of the most uncomfortable places to be when a storm is coming, but it is also the safest place to be. And so even though we talk about this being a safe place to deal with whatever sin or issues or things that are going on in your life, it may not be comfortable in the process for any of us. It is not comfortable for us to sit on one side and say, well, you know, you, that's really not what God has for you. That's not the best because pe- nobody wants to be told that they're wrong or doing something that God doesn't approve of. So it's not comfortable for us on this side, and it is definitely not comfortable for the person who's hearing it. But it has to be safe as we come to that. And so we cannot continue to ignore it, but we can give the most safe place for us to approach these issues. Let me give you a couple of other things as well. Uh, One of the reasons that this has become such a divisive issue is because religious folk have used language that we would never want people to use talking about us. Using words like, this is disgusting, or to share disdain, or this is gross, or whatever. Now, you and I would not be feel in like we are in a safe relationship if people talk like that about us, would we? We wouldn't. The way we talk about it is important. I don't just mean from the, from the stage. The way we talk about it in front of others, the way we talk about it on social media, the way we talk about it in private conversations where you know no one else is going to hear you. All those conversations matter. The way we talk matters. And showing love has to begin with the language that we use. So if those are words that you're used to hearing or you've grown up hearing talking about this issue, they need to be stricken from your vocabulary and quite honestly there is no other situation that you should use those in when talking about another person people are lovely god loves them they're beautiful to him they should be to us as well so we have to be very careful about the way we talk to them both in public and in private it's also very important that we don't go in being the truth banner bearers you know what i mean by that I'm going to walk in the room and by golly, you're going to know the truth before you leave, whether you like it or not. Fortunately, that's many of the ways that we've done this in the past. And it doesn't work. You wouldn't accept it. And they're not going to accept it either. Now, we have friends that, uh, again, fit every one of the situations in which we've talked about today. We love them. We spend time with them. Our children at times will spend time together. And we've cared for them. If they needed something, I'd be there. In fact, we went a long time before we even had the conversation about what the scriptures say simply because they did, weren't ready and they did not ask. Now, when they asked, I was not excited because I loved our friendship. But I believe I've learned a few things about sharing grace and love with people. And we're so thankful that whenever the question came up, it would, I was an immediate prayer. God, Oh, man, help me say the right things and help them receive this in the way I want them to receive it. 
And so we've been able, even though we disagree on many of these things, we've been able to continue to have a friendship. We are not the truth banner bearers. Jesus is truth. We share in love and grace. So I would say this, build a relationship based on friendship, mutual respect and appreciation before you try to jump into, well, let me tell you what the Bible says. Because that is the only way, whether it be same-sex attraction, whether it be gossip, or no matter what it is, that is the way that we share truth is through a relationship founded in love. Those are crucial in having this conversation. And over, over, over and again, make sure that we're offering grace, not judgment. Now, there are some that believe that as Christians that we need to somehow separate, segregate ourselves from this population of the world that doesn't see things the way that we see it. I will tell you that that is a Pharisee argument. That is not a Jesus argument. Jesus would never have said that. In 1 Corinthians 5, we've read this before, it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I ha- what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now what he's saying here is, Those people who claim to be followers of the truth and they are sharing the truth with others and they are saying, I am saved and washed by the blood of Jesus and yet not bowing in humility before him. There's a difference. A person who goes around saying, yes, I'm a Christian who has no interest in following the teachings of Jesus is one that the church needs to step in and say, listen, you're not consistent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But guess what? No one outside of the church is consistent with being a follower of Jesus. And so we respond to them differently. We respond to them in love. We respond to them with acceptance. We respond to them with respect. We consistently give them grace. So these are the last two things we're going to leave with you this morning. To sum up this, there's really no way to sum this up into two statements. But but there are two different groups of people I want to talk to with these. Number one. Those who follow Jesus will deny themselves to embrace Jesus. Now let that sink in. Those who follow Jesus will deny themselves to embrace Jesus. We have to deny ourselves in so many different ways because our nature tells us that this is great, this is good. And Jesus says, no, that is the path to destruction. If we love Jesus... I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect at this, and certainly not if you're a new believer. But we will grow wanting to embrace him over our own freedoms. Number two, I will say those who know grace will give grace. Those who know grace will give it. The reason I believe that Christians can be some of the meanest people on the face of the planet is because they've never truly experienced grace. 
if you've never experienced it, you don't have the fuel in which to give it. Because you've not come to the place where you say, God, I am broken. I am a sinner before you. I have no defense at all. Please save me. And if you have done that, and you look upon the life of someone else, you will have grace because you know what it feels like. Those who know grace will give grace. Let us be a people of grace. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray that uh, on this very difficult subject, you would move our hearts. I pray that you would show us what it looks like to follow you. I pray for those in this room that either struggle with this issue or know someone that does. God, you ultimately are the one who most effectively communicates truth. You, you communicate it so gently and lovingly. Father, I pray that you will help us to experience your love. I pray for those in this room that may struggle, that they would experience your love and acceptance, total acceptance. But yet they will also be able to look at their life and ask themselves, am I truly following in the way of Jesus, the way that leads to rest, that leads to peace, that leads to hope, that leads to joy? Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to be able to love people that are different from us. They look different from us. They act different from us. They have different skin color. They do life differently. They have relationships with people that we would not have relationships with. But God, you have called us to love. Help us to have hearts that are capable of loving someone no matter who they are, no matter what they come from, no matter what they deal with. Father, I pray you would help us to love those that do not like us. Father, I pray that we would respond as you did. Let us be a people of grace. Let us be a people of love. Let us also be a people of truth through your grace and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.